COVID-19 has had universal effects upon the world. Truly, it has also impacted the church of Jesus Christ. It has caused at least a period of separation from those individuals that were being discipled, from those that were discipling them. So here's my question. When you are not able to get physically to those you are discipling, how should you pray for them? A man and wife were returning to their seats in a theater, and the man said to the person seated, I beg your pardon, but did I step on your toes when I left? The annoyed person said, you certainly did. The man standing then turned to his wife and said, honey, come on through. We're in the right row. (laughs) Likewise, Paul wanted to make a return trip to Thessalonica. However, he was inhibited by Satan. We saw that from 1 Thessalonians 2, 18. Turn with me now, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And our text for today is verses 11 through 13. But they will build upon what we learned concerning Paul's heart. In verses 9 and 10. So let me read that to you first of all. 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 and 10. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. Night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. I have two questions for you to consider that will be answered, I trust, from chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Number one, how should you pray for your disciples when you are physically inhibited from visiting them? How should you pray for them? Number two, what should you pray for the saints spiritually when you cannot visit? Those two questions. Let's think about them. Let me read the text now. First Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Join me in prayer. Father, it's been a privilege to be preaching through this wonderful book. I ask that you might minister to each heart today. That we would align our hearts with your heart and that of Paul and Silas and Timothy who walked with you. Speak now to us powerfully as only you can individually to each of us (laughs) through your word. By your spirit, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now may our God and Father himself, the word now shows a transition. The transition from Paul's heart 
that I just read about in verses 9 and 10 to where we are at today. It's going to elaborate upon Paul's heart. May our God and Father, the definite article, the, appears before God and Father, showing one person but with two features. Also, I want you to see here, Paul does not direct his prayer to the God and Father, but to our God and Father. So as Paul writes this in behalf also of Timothy and Silas, he says, we have a relationship with our God as you Thessalonians do. They've made it personal. He's not a distant God who is just out there and cannot be communicated with. No, he is our God and father. Our God and father. And I love the word here himself. Intriguingly, in the beginning of the verse in the Greek text, the word himself appears. Many commentators say, oh, that's a reference, an emphatic reference to God the Father. As we look at the Father and the Son, we will see that the verb used is singular, showing the unity of both of them. So I think the word himself here refers to both Father and Son, showing the unity of the two because it speaks not only of our God and Father himself but also and our Lord. Notice the word ours used again. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you find this interesting? That traditionally when we are instructed to pray it's to God. It's to God the Father. And it's through the person of Christ, and that's why we say in Jesus' name. Because it's our relationship with Jesus that gives us access to the Father. But here, as Paul is praying, it is to not only the Father, but also to the Son as well. That doesn't happen very often in Scripture. For instance, in Acts chapter 7... Stephen, before being martyred, prays directly to the Son. But you don't see that often in the Scripture. So it's not only to the Father, but also to the Son that, if you will, they, but spoken of as one because of the unity of the two, would direct our way to you. And the word here, direct, as I pointed out before, is singular. It communicates the unity of the father and son. Let me give you an example. If I said Bob and Susie, I would not say is going to the park. Bob and Susie are. You used a plural verb to show agreement. But yet when it speaks about the father and the son, here we have the singular verb. Why? Showing the unity of the father. As Jesus himself says, I and the father are one. One God, three persons. Notice that the term direct has an intensifier, a preposition affixed to it. And it means to guide or to direct. So it's a strong guidance. It's a strong direction with a straight line 
to a particular place. And I find it intriguing as well that as you study Paul's prayer, he doesn't use a command, an imperative. He doesn't tell God what to do. When you watch cable TV and you turn on the televangelist, it's as if the televangelist believes that he is sitting in the back seat telling the chauffeur God or Jesus what to do. When Paul uses this verb, it's an optative. That's the mood or the mode. It's the least forceful way to say anything. It's a wish. Paul is wishing. See, he doesn't command the Almighty what to do. He wishes that God would direct him back to these saints. Very interesting. But here's point number one. Ask the Lord to clear a path to the saints. Ask the Lord to clear a path to the saints. You recall back in chapter two, Paul wanted to go time and again to see these saints, but was thwarted. The wicked one sort of blew up the road as Paul tried to travel back to see them. So we need to ask the Lord. See, we're dependent on him for all things, even to have access to one another to clear a path to the saints. Satan repeatedly stopped Paul from making that trip. But yet God always has a purpose. Listen to Romans 1.11. As Paul writes to the saints at Rome. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. And here's the purpose. So that you may be established. Do you remember what Paul's focus was? In Romans 15, we learn that he was to go and preach Christ where Christ hadn't been named. Although Satan kept Paul from coming back to Thessalonica, God used that so Paul could go to other places bringing people the gospel. Most likely, it took Paul five years to get back to Thessalonica. When you read Acts 19, couple that with 1 Corinthians 16.5 and 2 Corinthians 2.13, it seems on a return trip to the Macedonian province is most likely where Paul would have come back to see these saints. But this is what we need to understand. Number one, ask the Lord to clear a path to the saints. Ask him to open that door. Number two, ask the Lord to mature the saints for Jesus's arrival. That's verses 12 and 13. Let me say this again. Ask the Lord to mature the saints for Jesus's arrival. Paul transitions from praying for his missionary team to the Thessalonian saints. Verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. The word translated and, 
could perhaps be better translated, but it's an adversative here. It shows a contrast. Paul states that regardless of what happens concerning his hopeful visit to the Thessalonians, may God, may the Lord make you increase and abound. Think about this. Does God have any limitations whatsoever? Now, to the nobleman in John chapter 4, he had a desire for Jesus to come and to heal someone. But he said, Jesus, come with me to my house. Jesus didn't have to show up on the premises. We learned in Matthew chapter 8 about the centurion who had a servant that was sick. He said, hey, Lord, you don't have to come under my roof. Just say the word. And it is done. So regardless, if you are having face-to-face communion, which is preferable, and when the circumstance is right for that, or you are separated and cannot get to someone, we have this weapon We have this resource. It's called prayer. So whether the person is a thousand miles away that you're ministering to. Eight thousand miles away. You pray. Because ultimately it's the Lord that we are dependent upon to cause that individual to grow and abound. So turn to prayer. Make sure that you are trusting in the Lord to bring about the maturation of that individual and not in your own strength. And the prayer here is, may the Lord. Now, the Lord, like back in chapter 3 and verse 8, can possibly refer to God the Father. It's how it's often used in Scripture. Lord alone means God the Father. Yet, Because of the previous prayer, that it was both the Father and Son, and also in the previous verse, it spoke about the Lord Jesus. So, it seems to me that when he is praying here to the Lord, he is referring to Jesus Christ. And he calls him Lord. And what is he praying to the Lord? To make you increase. To possess or cause to have more. Paul's wish, his prayer for the saints is fulfilled. Because just flip the page to 2 Thessalonians 1.3. We are bound to thank God always for you brethren as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all abounds to each other. His prayer is answered. These individuals increase and abound. The idea of abound is to have an overabundance. It's causative here. In other words, it's God that causes us. It is Jesus that causes us to have an overabundance. And by the way, the terms are somewhat Synonymous. They're, they're saying pretty much the same thing, but combined, they're given to show 
Paul's desire for them to increase and overflow. He really wants them to mature greatly. But in what? In love. In the tribulation period, according to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12, Jesus says, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But child of God, we are to increase and abound in love to whom? To one another. Jesus states it this way. In John 13 and verse 35, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, don't set limits on your love. As you draw near to the heart of God and God is love. First John four, eight and his love saturates your life. You continue to give love unconditionally and without limit to the saints in love to one another. Listen to first Peter four, eight and above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins, but a fervent love for whom for one Another child of God, we have obligation because Jesus has given it to us to increase and abound in our love for one another in the Christian community. But then it says, and to all, not just to the saved, but the unsaved also. Galatians 6.10. As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. So let the love expand to all. And then Paul could say this confidently, just as we do to you. Paul, Silas, and Timothy's love for the Thessalonian saints continued to increase and abound. They modeled for the saints what the saints needed to be practicing. First Corinthians 416. Therefore, I urge you imitate me. First Corinthians 11, one. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. That's the order, everybody. You stay close to God. You walk with him. His love fills your heart. And then as you are imitating the Holy One, then you can say to others, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. See the two words so that they speak of purpose. What's the purpose here of the increase of this love so that he, see Jesus 
may establish. Paul longed to see Christ stabilize those saints to increase in their love, but not only in their love, but in their holiness. He might establish your hearts blameless. And blameless here has the idea, an important concept, of not finding fault. Let me unpack some of this. Establish your hearts blameless in holiness. So to establish, remember, to make firm or fixed. First time this word appears from the Greek New Testament is used of Jesus. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, it says that he steadfastly set, that's our term, his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what his mission was. He was firm. He was fixed. He was going to complete it. Then we see that it's also used this term when Timothy was dispatched to keep the saints at Thessalonica firm or mature. That's first Thessalonians three, two. And Paul ultimately trust Jesus to keep them firm in the faith. Go with me, please, to second Thessalonians two seventeen. Second Thessalonians two seventeen. Paul is praying to Lord Jesus and God and say, may they comfort your hearts and what? Establish you in every good word and work. And then to chapter three and verse three, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. See, he's faithful. Trust him. Pray to him. That he will establish those saints blameless. Blameless back here in 1 Thessalonians 3.13. The word blameless means literally not to have fault. Luke chapter 1 verse 6. A great example. Speaking of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Names sound familiar to parents of John the Baptist. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. No wonder the Almighty took this elderly couple and from the womb of Elizabeth came John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord, the one that the Lord Jesus from Christ spoke of so highly. Blameless parents, interestingly. So the prayer, the love might increase, and that Jesus might establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Interestingly, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, this term is only used of God who is in the state of holiness. But now it is used here of us, the saints, that we are to be perfected in holiness, as it says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all 
his saints. In the presence of the Father? Is that a contradiction? Because isn't it Jesus who is returning for us? 1 John 2, 28. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Yes. But if you've seen me, says Jesus, you've seen the Father. Again, the two are closely linked. No surprise here. Before our God and Father. Our God and Father. One article, again, connects God and Father. One God. And here it's the idea with two titles. He's the Father and he's also God. But it's at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just an appearing, but a literal coming. Perusia. It means the personal presence of someone. In Philippians chapter 2, in verse 12, in that context, it talks about the presence of someone versus their absence. I mean, someone physically being there. Also, it is used of Jesus in the rapture when he will come and make a personal visit with us. And as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. It's more than just an appearance. It's a visit, but it's to take us to be with him and to be with him forever. So it's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but with all the saints. And the word saints can refer to angels, as in Matthew 25 and verse 31. But it seems here in the context better to relate it to the church age saints, as the word is used in Ephesians 1.1. And then as we'll get over to chapter 4 and verses 14 through 17. So what have we learned today? Two major concepts, two employment points. Number one, ask the Lord to clear a path to the saints. As Paul wanted to go and minister to the Thessalonians, we should want to go and minister to those that God has entrusted to us. Spend time discipling them. Spend time praying with them And then if you get inhibited from being with them physically, as you should already be praying for them, trust the Almighty to mature them, even in your absence. So ask the Lord to clear a path to the saints. And then number two, ask the Lord to mature the saints for his arrival. A pastor's mission is to help what Jesus has already started in you. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, you have been predestined, marked out ahead of time to be conformed to the image of Jesus. The role of the spiritual leader is to help the sheep to become more like the Savior. That work will be completed one day when Jesus returns, 
but there should be a growth process where we are be changed daily from one degree of glory to the next, writes Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we need to be praying that the Father, the Son, would mature the saints. Why? We want them prepared. So when Jesus comes back, he will be pleased with their lives. See, in 1 John 2, 28, now little children abide in him that when he appears, we might have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Your mission, child of God, find the lost. Train the found for the glory of God. Help those saints to mature, to reflect more and more the image of Jesus Christ. So that when he comes for that permanent visit with us to take us to be with him, he will be so pleased because he will find saints, sheep, children of God who already reflect his image greatly join me in prayer thank you heavenly father i thank you for what we have learned here today and i ask you father that you would kindly clear the path for us to minister to all the saints you want us to visit personally and then father for those that we cannot get to face-to-face, that you would mature them, that they would reflect the glory of Jesus Christ, the image of the Son, so one day when he returns, you'll be pleased. May we do all these things for the glory of God. I ask in Jesus' name. 